Well, I've skipped a few chapters for you this morning. We were last week at Exodus chapter 24, and that gave us some big picture instructions on how God was to be worshipped by Israel amongst the nations. In chapters 25 to 27, we have some details about the construction of the tabernacle, that is a, a mobile forerunner to the temple. And then in chapters 28 and 29, we have details on the, the priesthood and uh, those who would mediate between the people and God. And then in 30, we have details of uh, what service within the tabernacle would look like. But for the sake of the fact that there's a lot of repetition and a lot of details on the pieces of furniture and things, uh, I've skipped ahead a little bit to, to what I think is uh, maybe got more to say for us this morning. And we're going to think particularly about the building of this tent, the tabernacle. But I really want to spend some time thinking as well about work and rest for us. Because the people were to work and to rest to the glory of God. And so that's what we're going to think about this morning, working and resting to the glory of God. In those first 11 verses there, if you can cast your eyes to those, we see how we might serve God through our work There in verses 7 to 11, we have all those uh, things that are to be built, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that's on it, um, and on and on. There's work for them to be getting on with, isn't there? And these are all things, all the tent and all the furniture within them are things that are shadows. We know this by reading from the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 8. It tells us, There are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, and this is what we're hearing about here, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The tent, the offerings, the furniture, the sacrifices, the priests are all but shadows symbols, signs, signs pointing to a greater, a spiritual and a future fulfillment to come. And so they need making properly. And so hence these instructions here that are very detailed. The shadows, the symbols only really work effectively if they're built properly. So the tabernacle, this tent, was an embodied visual memory aid for the covenant that we thought about in chapter 24 last week. That was the purpose. That was the point. I've got a couple of slides actually here maybe for you to help sort of envisage what this might have looked like on some of the pieces of furniture. But this tent, the tabernacle, showed that God desired to dwell with the people, but that the people were cut off from his presence in the holy place by a curtain. In the holy place rested the ark, and between the wings of the angels there, God's uh, presence was said to dwell and to rest. And what the people were being told and reminded very visually is that we cannot just approach God as we are, because we have broken the covenant, and so blood must be shed. And so upon the altar, an animal sacrifice would be made in our place, And the blood collected, and the blood would be sprinkled upon the mercy seat on the ark in order to remove God's anger. And none of this could be done by us, but by a mediator going in on our behalf, a priest, someone who would represent us before God. 
And that's all grand, but the obvious sort of question, I suppose, is who is going to make those dreams and come true in reality? Who is going to build this thing? Who is going to make this furniture? Because for generations, the Israelites have been slaves. All they've known is making bricks. All those sort of skills would seem to have been engineered out of them. And then look at what God does. Look at verse 2 and verse 6. See, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And then verse 6. And behold, I've appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach. I don't know how to say any of these names. Of the tribe of Dan. And I've given to all able men ability that they may make all that I've commanded you. God has already got this under control, hasn't he? He already has this in hand. He has already assigned the jobs. We talk often, don't we, about choosing a career path and choosing carefully and thinking about that. But what about finding the career path that actually God has already called us and assigned us to? Because that's what seems to be happening here, isn't it? That God has already appointed the right people who've been given all the skills that they need. Look at verse 3. I filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. Everything that comes after is a result of the reality that he has filled them with his Spirit. And that's given them ability, intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship. Work is not a chance for us to showcase our talent or to build our identity, but it is God's equipping and our chance for us to show our identity in him. And you see, this is a bigger vision of work, isn't it? There's a much, much bigger vision of work than work being the place that I simply earn the money that I need to pay my bills or work being the place that I go to find my identity and find who I am in the world and make something of myself or work being the place where I just about manage not to sort of berate the person that really, really annoys me every day. This is a much bigger vision of work, isn't it? That work is something that God equips me and calls me to and it's something through which I show my identity in him. And we'll come back to it, but maybe that should drive us to prayer, shouldn't it? Maybe it should motivate us to give our best. And maybe it should help us to build a bit of resilience. But look at the way in which he equips them there, verse 3 to 5. I filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. We see four ways in which God has actually equipped the people he's called to do this work for the work that he's called them to. Firstly, he gives ability. He gives wisdom. He gives the skills, the insight to understand the task that they have before them. He's given them intelligence and ability. The ability to choose the right course of action in the line of work. He's given them knowledge Knowledge of the techniques and skills and processes and materials that might be needed. And he's given them craftsmanship. In fact, actually, the, the, the word in the original language is just that all kinds of work. <laughs> the ability to do whatever they need to do in the course of that work. That they would have all the skills that they needed in all the different areas that would come up. And so the question was, well, who is going to do this work? Who is going to build this thing? Who is going to make this furniture 
And the answer was that God would provide all that you need to do the work that you have to do. You see them serving God through their work, but then we get this section about the Sabbath, don't we? And they might seem unrelated, but I think they're highly related. And the idea here is that we serve God through your rest. Firstly, we see the priority of the Sabbath, don't we? The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. The tabernacle being built doesn't depend on your overworking, Israel. I think that's what God is saying here. That there's a priority of the Sabbath, of resting. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. It's a priority perhaps because it would be so tempting not to. When you hear that assignment, you say, this is so complex, complicated and intricate. I'm going to have to work every hour under the sun to get this right. Wouldn't that be the temptation? That would be my temptation. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. But look at why. And maybe this is the most important thing that might be said in all of this section. Do you see it at the end of verse 13? This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. And if you have an analogue sort of Bible there, whether it's your own Bible you take home or just the piece of paper, I'd encourage you maybe to circle I and you and look at what comes in between. I, the Lord, will sanctify you. Exodus, this whole story, this whole book, reveals that the people then, as now, are saved by grace alone. Let me give you a couple of references just to reinforce that. Think of the Passover. We thought of that together back in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statue for you, and for your sons forever. In God's grace, he accepts the lamb's blood as equivalent, though it isn't, to their own, because of that idea that a lamb's life for your life. It's not that presenting a lamb to be killed was such a commendable act. And it's a good job, because this is the whole basis of the sacrificial system that is to come. It's not that that act in itself is so pleasing to God. It's that he accepts it. And it's the same with our faith. We're saved not because of the action of our faith, but because of the object of our faith. We're saved because Jesus was perfectly righteous in our place, not because we're really faithful people. It's not about stoking up this really great fervency of faith within us. It's trusting in the one who is perfectly faithful. Let me give you one more example. There's the Passover, but secondly, there's the covenant. And we thought about it last week. Ben was speaking about that for us. Chapter 24. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. These people would break the covenant that God had made. 
but God keeps the covenant by accepting the blood of lambs instead. We too have broken the covenant. We break God's laws. But Jesus kept God's law perfectly and we are spared by him having done it for us and his blood being accepted on our behalf in much the same way. We don't do a ritualistic thing of sort of flicking that blood on you. You'll be thankful of that. It's a bit disgusting. But in much the same way, we like the people are covered by the blood of another shed in our place. We're saved by grace alone. But we are also made holy by God alone. It is grace at work within us, not our work. And that's the idea here in verse 13, that I, the Lord, will sanctify you. And what I'm saying, to put it into some fancy terms, is sanctification, that's being made more holy, that's being made more like God, is monogistic. It's a fancy way of saying it's God alone who does it. It's not a partnership between you and God. If it was, your part of the partnership would be frustrating it and ruining everything. Sanctification is monogistic. We're comfortable, aren't we? I think sometimes talking about being justified, there's made right before God by grace alone, and we are. It's that idea that what justifies us is Jesus' blood shed for us because he perfectly fulfilled the covenant expectations. Every single law and its heart and everything underneath it, he met. And so the righteousness of Jesus in our place makes our faith acceptable, an acceptable substitute for our unrighteousness. We've not been righteous, we should have, but the fact that we're faithful in one who was is deemed by God as acceptable. But sanctification, being made more holy, is also only achieved through the work of God in us by grace alone. And let me give you just three short references from the New Testament that will back this up there's many places you could go Galatians chapter 3 verse 3 having begun by the spirit Paul says are you now being perfected and the idea again is being sanctified being made holy having been saved by faith are you now being made holy by the flesh he says no not at all you've begun by the spirit and you'll continue by the spirit that is you've begun by God having worked within you you'll continue by God continuing to work within you Philippians 2 verse 13 it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure you know what it's saying to will and to work to change your mind your motivations your desires your desire now to do good has come from God and he does that and your ability with your hands to actually live it out. Your actual ability to do good comes from him working in you. Or John, chapter 17, this is Jesus speaking. He's speaking to the Father. He's praying for the people before he goes to his death. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You're made holy. You're made more like God by God. Through his word. We are saved by grace alone. And we are made holy. By grace alone. And so. The charge here is. Keep the Sabbath in faith. Keep the Sabbath in faith. Knowing you can't perfect yourself. You need God. You need to stop. You need him to work in you. 
There's a priority to the Sabbath. But then we see the purpose of the Sabbath there as well. And the purpose is that their relationship to God was more important than building this tent. Important though it was. He says this is a sign between me and you. This expresses our relationship. But it expresses that not only between us, but to the nations around you. They see what kind of a God it is that you serve. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it should be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul should be cut off from among his people. For six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. And then look at what it says here. In verse 14, it said it's holy for you. In verse 15, it ends it, it is holy to the Lord. It is special for you. It marks you out amongst the peoples as gods. And it is good for you. But it is also special for God. He desires for you to thrive and to refresh you in rest. And see, the distinct reality and practice of Sabbath is for your flourishing. But it is also for the Lord's honour and for witness to the world. And there's very serious consequences of breaking it here, isn't there? Rejecting God's ways leads to being cut off from his people. It's a very serious thing. And you can read of those there in verse 14, isn't it? Everyone who profanes it should be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul should be cut off from among his people. There's an immediate consequence, isn't it? Killed. And there's a legacy. They're wiped out of history. In the same way in which it's spoken about the Amalekites who attacked the Israelites, that they were going to be wiped out of history. And this is what happens when you oppose God. And that's the point of it, isn't it? That the, the stubborn refusal to follow God's pattern and ways is judged very seriously. And so while God does all for our flourishing, he's to be followed on his terms and ignored at our peril. But then there's a message of the Sabbath, isn't there? That their resting shows their identity as God's people. Look at verse 17. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Through this, they picture the reality of who God is and what God has done in the midst of the nations. And so there's a question, wasn't it? How will we get this done? How will we do this work? Well, the answer is not by your hand, not by your might. You need to stop. And so then lastly, I want to think about our work and our rest. Firstly, let's think a little bit about work. We often speak of the calling to ministry, but God calls everyone to the work that they do. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, thinking about work, says this. The idea that the service to God should have only to do with a church altar, singing, reading, sacrifice and the like, is without doubt the worst trick of the devil. How could the devil have led us more effectively astray than by the narrow conception that service to God takes place only in a church and by the works done therein? 
the whole world could abound with the services to the Lord, not only in churches, but also in the home, kitchen, workshop, field. Your work is sacred. Work isn't the thing that takes us away from our faith or that is in some way opposed to faith. In fact, work is a vehicle through which we can live out our faith. Think of Jesus' summary of the commandments, the essence of what it is to follow God. He says there's the two great commands, to love the Lord your God with all your being and to love your neighbour. Through work, we love our neighbours, whether that's the family that we provide for, whether that's our clients or customers or patients, our colleagues that we work alongside, bosses that we work for. We're all, aren't we, educated and cared for, clothed, fed, entertained, protected, defended by God through people through teachers, through carers, through doctors, nurses, builders, designers, planners, chefs, council workers, military, police, on and on. Through work, we can love our neighbours. But through work, we also love God. We use the skills that he has given us. We serve him in the places that he has appointed us. We are his hands where he's placed us. Through work, we can fulfill those two great commands. We don't work to showcase our talent or to build up our identity, but we work through God's equipping us, and we work to show our identity in him. And that is a much, much bigger vision of work, isn't it? Much bigger. It drives us to prayer. Here's two prayers. Perhaps we could pray for our work this week. Firstly, am I in the thing that God has called me to? Hopefully the answer will be yes, but it's worth asking, isn't it? Am I in the thing that God has called me to? And if I am, well, what is it that God is calling me to do with my time? Many of you, I hope, will feel a clear sort of sense of yes, I'm, I'm where God has placed me to be. But don't assume it without having asked it. And secondly... Am I working out of my identity and by God's equipping in me? Or am I working to try and find an identity? Am I working to try and showcase my own talents? And I wonder where we might be in 30 days if we spent every day a little bit of time asking for all of those things in verse 3 to come from God. I filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge, and all craftsmanship. What might our work look like in 30 days' time, I wonder? Because your work, whatever it is, is really important. And it needs you giving you all. Another Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr., thinking about work. He says, when you discover what you will be in your life, Set out to do it as if God Almighty called you at this particular moment in history to do it. Don't just set out to do a good job. Set out to do such a good job that the living, the dead, or the unborn couldn't do it any better. If you can't be a pine at the top of the hill, be a shrub in the valley. Be the best little shrub on the side of the hill. Be a bush if you can't be a tree. 
If you can't be a highway, just be a trail. If you can't be a sun, be a star. For it isn't by size that you win or fail. Be the best of whatever you are. I think it's probably important to say what that doesn't look like is perfectionism. It doesn't look like never being content with what you've produced or what someone else has produced alongside you. It doesn't look like perfectionism. It doesn't look like comparison, you know, constantly judging yourself and your own sort of performance in relation to other people or other people's performance in relation to other people. It doesn't look like perfectionism or comparison, and it doesn't look like competition. It's not seeing work as pitting you against other people. Your work, whatever it is, is really important, and it needs you giving your all. And yet, hear this, it is not your God. It is not your God. So how do we then, finally coming to think of rest, keep the Sabbath in 2024? Well, the day, I think, is a bit irrelevant. When it is you do it, how exactly that looks like, I I don't think that matters. I think if it does, I'm in a bit of trouble because every seventh day, I'm working pretty much the whole day. I don't think the day is the most crucial thing. And for many of us, that'll be quite challenging, won't it? You know, working shifts, irregular patterns, having kids. It's not so easy, is it, quite to do that. But I think that the point that remains is you need regular rest through your week, every week. You need to accept that nothing all depends on you. And the world will keep going. And resting recognises that. It doesn't all depend on me. Not everything has to be me doing it. The world will keep going if I don't do it. And yet resting doesn't mean doing nothing, does it? Because you may, like me, much prefer to sort of rest, if you like, through hobbies, through exercise, through sports, through getting outside, I don't know, whatever it may be. You may find that actually being active and doing something rests you it brings you refreshment it doesn't necessarily have to be just lying on the sun lounger although there's times in life where that is very very fulfilling isn't it to think of nothing more than just about stretching your arm out for the drink sometimes you need that too but many times rest might actually be active for us And you can worship God through those things. And God intends for you to so do. God intends for you to enjoy life. Those things, those hobbies, those sports, activities, whatever, getting out, getting up a hill, swimming, I don't know, whatever it is that takes your fancy. Those things are made for you to enjoy. They're made as ways in which you would give thanks to God and enjoy him. Life is made to be good. It's made to be joyful. Enjoy resting by doing these things. And yet, maybe the most important thing of all of the Sabbath is the thing that begins to be expressed here, isn't it? That this is a sign between me and you. This is a sign between me and you around the nations too, that people know what I'm like and what my people will be like and what life with me looks like. That it looks restful, that it looks peaceful, that it looks joyous, that it looks like life is 
slightly more than just a slog that I'm getting through every day. The Sabbath is, as Jesus puts it in the New Testament, all about him. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so whatever you do to take your rest, however that looks like, whatever pattern it is you find that works for you, so long as you're doing it regularly, enjoy the things that God has given. Enjoy the life that he's granted you, the place in which he's put you, and enjoy him through it. Our work is important, but it's not our God. But he calls us to it, and through it we can love him and we can love one another. And we're called to rest, to know that nothing all depends on us. And most of all, your salvation and your standing before God doesn't rely on you constantly working, you constantly doing, you constantly being here, there, everywhere. But no, it doesn't. I, the Lord, sanctify you. Stop, rest, and enjoy what I have done. Just sit and appreciate and enjoy that I have made life to be good for you, to be enjoyed. What a witness that might have been to the nations around them. In the ancient world, there's really no concept of life that looks in any way like that. Think about what it might look like for us to live in the world like that. I'm not sure that there's anyone particularly with any idea like that now either. To rest and to enjoy the work that God has given you and to rest and enjoy the work that God has done for you. Why don't I pray and then we will continue worshipping by singing another two songs together as we come towards a close. Father, we thank you for the things that you give us to do, the work that we have, whatever that looks like for us, whatever form that takes, wherever that is. Lord, I pray that we would sense a real clarity of calling to the work that you've given us. Lord, if we're in the right place to know that and to be confident in that, or if there's somewhere that you're calling us to, to know that and to hear that, and for the doors to be open towards that. Lord, we pray as we come towards another week of work, Lord, might you in inspire us to, to love you and to love our neighbours through the work that you've given us this week, through the challenges that we face in the course of that, through the things about our work that, you know, don't always work, seem to work against us, through some of the challenging people we can be around, and some of the just challenging structural and uh, things that we face in, in whatever line of work that may be. Help us, Lord, to know your calling of us to those places and to those people and to those tasks. And Lord, might you grant us all that we need to do our very best for you and for the people you place us around. And Lord, would we know most of all the ability to rest in you too this week, to rest from our work, from our activities, but Lord, also to rest in our hearts, knowing that you make us right with you and you make us holy. 
And rather than exhausting ourselves on constant kind of religious activity, would you help us, Lord, to be able to rest and enjoy you and enjoy what you have done for us and know in our hearts peace and contentment that we are right before you because of all that you have done. And so we might have a joyous faith, not an anxious and guilt-ridden and exhausting, activity-filled faith, but a joyous and peaceful and restful one in which we can celebrate all that you've done and enjoy the life you've given. Spirit, pray that you might work these things deep within our hearts for our good, but Lord, also for your glory and for our witness to you in the world. Amen. Band are going to make her way back up to the front and I'll invite you to stand with us as we um, sing two songs to close. <laughs>